Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So today it's part two of why can't the United States win wars anymore? And uh, once again, joining me, uh, my good friend Michael Davies, who's been researching this for uh, a living for several years and uh, has worked at uh, National Defense University and uh, co-authored some reports with really long names. And if you want to know the <laughs> names of them, you can go back to part one of this podcast where I read them all. <laughs> so, Michael, yeah. welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, I have to agree. Um, living it is a better way to describe it than uh, working at this. This has a tendency to take over your life when, you know, put all this stuff t- together and, you know, writing those books and those everything. Uh, yeah, living it is is the best way to describe it. So, so in the in in the part one of this podcast, we talked about you you get you list seven reasons, seven things that are wrong basically with with uh, the way the United States fights wars now. And um, we dealt with three of them in, in part one, the, the incompetence of crafting end states. And we talked about basically what's wrong with them, how it's, it's, it's all of the problems with intervening in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq or dealing with the Syrian civil war, for example. And not understanding it when you do it. And not understanding when, when, when they do it. Um, yep. uh, and then uh, number, uh, parts two and three were uh, – the force used to achieve an end state and then the way the U S national security system works mm-hmm. and, and all of the problems with that. Now your, yep. your fourth point is, uh, let me just read it straight out for all the, the angst directed against the other 99% that did not serve. It has been forgotten that this was intentional. Uh, the American people did all that was asked of them, went to the mall, Disney world and waved the flag. So how much of this, I mean, the volunteer military is sort of a cherished part of, uh, of American life. Mm-hmm. Is it a problem that most Americans don't serve? No. Uh, even going back to World War II, even though there were 12 million men and women uh, under arms, and never forget there were women under arms, uh, even if they, they might have had different titles at the time, um, they were still fighting. Uh that, that was still, it was a very high percentage of the overall population, absolutely. Um, but it's still not, it wasn't uh, Soviet Union levels. It wasn't, uh, you, know, you know, Nazi Germany levels of conscription or anything else like that, where it truly was total war. Every single person had to be involved. Um, so it's it's not a problem that uh, most Americans don't solve. That's, uh, uh, sorry, don't serve. It's uh, a function of just the way the world operates at this time. It's not actually necessary. I mean, if you subscribe to certain uh, grand strategic views, then, you know, maybe more, maybe less, um, people should serve. Um, but my problem is just that the population turned off and in particular didn't uh, sacrifice anything. And then I really do mean anything for these wars. These, remember, um, going back to the early days of World War, uh, sorry, of September 11. These were supposed to be generational conflicts. These were supposed to be um, the great wars of the 21st century in which it will take a, a generation or more to be able to fight, to be able to win and all the rest of it. Um, and instead, uh, you know, you think with that type of pronouncement, that would mean, okay, we're now going to sacrifice a little bit to make sure, you know, to, to maintain our freedoms, maintain our way of life, um, and to be able to achieve the end state that we have been 
promised and told this is what it is. And instead, everyone gets a tax cut. Um, everyone is told, go to the mall, go shopping, go to Disney World. Take your mind off the fact that there are people out there getting killed um, for your ability to go to Disney World. That's a problem, precisely because after a couple of years, everyone seems to forget about it while it might be in the news or it's on the, you know, in the paper and uh, your 6 o'clock, 6.30 uh, TV broadcast, a lot of people don't really care. Or, and this is really important as well. The only thing they care about is the troops themselves. They don't care about the mission. They only care about the troops themselves and getting as many home uh, back home as possible. And that's the moment when this. I mean, the the, the seven um, lessons that I've learned are all intertwined. They're, they're not just separated. They're not just, oh, we can focus on one and deal with it. They're all intertwined. And this is the moment when you know that your end state is basically bunk, when people no longer cared. And this is even true, very, very true, in fact, for the generals in charge, when they no longer really care about um, the mission itself but only care about getting people back home. That's when you know the mission no longer has any meaning. I, hesitate, doesn't. I hesitate to bring up James Fallows's January, February 2015 piece on in the Atlantic called "The Tragedy of the American Military," where he he talks yes. about this. But um, I'm go, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I feel like I mean I was in college when 9/11 happened, yes. so it was. I was in high school. Yeah, so yeah. I, I I literally just started college two weeks mm-hmm. before it happened. And mm-hmm. um, so I didn't, I wasn't being taxed at that point because I was in college. Mm-hmm. But soon enough thereafter, I was. And I actually, I mean, it, there's part of me that says I would have liked my tax dollars to go up because then there would have been a bit more accountability on, on what yes. happened. Like it, it just, the, I, I don't feel qualified to say whether or not the Pentagon spends its really enormous budget well. <laughs> Or not. Which it doesn't. (laughs) But I feel like there's no incentive for it to do so because no one's, you know, no one's on the hook for this because so much of of our wartime spending has been funded by by deficit spending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually gave short titles to every one of the lessons and just by um, uh, word count alone, I had to take them all out. But I called lesson four Chicken Hawk Nation based upon James Fallows' article, which I absolutely love. There are, there are a couple of um, issues I have with it, but it's still it's a very good article. Um, and this is also why in the, um, the, the uh, foreign policy article, there are three separate parts to this. Uh, and it is the, the social dislocation, just like not caring, not having a, a distinctive impact um, on these wars, not just because they didn't serve, but because they had no stake in it. Um, they, they didn't have any skin in the game in any way, shape, or form. They might have known a couple of people who went in, and that's about it. Um, uh, but more than anything else, it was more just, you know, sticking that yellow bumper sticker on, um, you know, the yellow ribbon on somewhere and procla- proclaiming you love the troops, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the, th- the three things that I put together is, again, the, the social. And then it's Congress never fully authorized any of these wars. These are the longest wars in American history, and they were nothing more than authorizations of the use of military force, to put it in the language of the War Powers Resolution. And then, like you said, it was all put on the National Credit Card, which, and this is a book I urge everyone to read, um, which is the hegemony, uh, pull it up here again, um, The Political Economy of American Hegemony, um, 
by Thomas Oatley. So this talks about basically that it takes multiple steps, but not paying for military buildups, particularly for war, ends up causing mil- uh, financial crises. So there is a direct link through about three or four loops, um, causal loops, to not paying for Iraq and Afghanistan and multiple other things that came after, uh, like Libya and the global financial crisis, mainly because the best way to fund credit is through mortgages, which, of course, are the center point of the global financial crisis. That's the, that's the causal link between these two things. So by constantly, and this goes back to um, sort of the 80s, the 80s buildup ended up with the SNL um, uh, problems, you know, in the very late 80s, early in, into the early 90s. Um, you saw the Asian financial crisis, again, driven by uh, credit, but this time predominantly in Asia, but it also had a very distinctively in uh, America as well, and then financial crisis. It's the same thing over and over again. When you don't pay for wars or a defense buildup through direct taxation, and I do mean direct, um, you end up spurring sort of uh, financial trickery, if you will, as well as because you need the credit to consistently grow to be able to fund these wars. Well, this, only is, change- this, is, this is the big, uh, I mean, th- this gives Obama some, some credit Libya only cost a billion dollars, so that <laughs> that one was relatively and cheap. It was completely to- unsuccessful as well. So, and again, going back to end states, in a, you know, the the president has come out and said, you know, he, his greatest regret was not caring about sort of the end states in Afghanistan and how that would have impacted how we would have operated. That's great. Problem is, he has not taken that that same lesson that he supposedly learned, applied it to Iraq, applied it to Afghanistan, applied it to Syria, the current day, and all the rest of it. It's just no real application. So, so while I definitely share his angst against the DC foreign policy community, he himself has not implemented the very things he he seems to have a uh, an angst against. And this leads uh, this leads us straight to point five, which is let, let me let me read the the very first sentence of it. Um, quote: America's domestic sources of power are a drag on any effective global strategy. End quote. Yeah. So. Yes. You talk about the deficit, the debt, energy, education, infrastructure, immigration. Basically, you've got America's domestic problems getting in the way of it having a grand strategy. Um, Or being able to implement the grand strategy that it it wants. Um, The example that I like using most is how do you expect soldiers of now and into the future to be able to operate in highly complex zones, whether it's mega cities or, you know, a valley in Afghanistan and various other places where you need a certain amount of cultural knowledge and empathy as well, uh, as well as the tactical awareness and just the, the general higher IQ to be able to engage in, in these types of complex areas. Um, when you have an, uh, an agricultural moving into industrial level um, education system. Uh, but And this also goes back to what um, uh, Tom Ricks first asked, is how do you move into the, the information age? So again, you, you need an education system that actually teaches people to be able to operate as, uh, I would most say, how, like what the best, uh, science, whether it's anthropology, sociology, or the rest, um, how people engage with one another, but you're using 19th and 20th century methods. It simply doesn't work. 
you need to be able to um, uh, just sort of have people operate the exact the way you would like them to, or at least give them the ability to think rather than teaching them what to think. If you want to put a bumper sticker on, and that you know, teaching them what to think is the nineteenth, twentieth century manner of education. That's still the norm. That's how the the education system works in the United States and in many other countries in a lot of ways as well. Um, but the ability to think, the ability to think on your feet, take charge yourself, and in a very small team, um, really does start when you're a very young kid, and then you have to see it throughout your uh, entire schooling and then moving into um, the business world or just just sort of, um, you know, post-education, whether or not it's private, public or whatever. Um, But if you want to be a soldier and even if you want the economy to operate in such a way, you need to have a citizenry that is, that that sort of engages with that naturally. That, That you've built an education system that just sort of uh, I'm trying very hard not to say make because, um, you know, you, you're getting into nature versus nurture at that point. Um, but it's more just you, you you have to build an actual education system that does what it wants you to be, what, what you want it to be. And in this case, uh, for, the, for the 21st century, it has to be a combination of being able to, uh, of an individual being able to operate individually and being able to see, um, sort of uh, meld into any circumstance very well, um, you you know, just naturally as well, uh, and just sort of being able to do multiple things. Uh, And that the current education system just makes that impossible. And again, going back to uh, lesson two, which and lesson three, which talks about the U.S. national security system, the force structure, these very structures about, you know, a strong hierarchy um, and you will do what you were told, only only what you're told, as well as um, you were you were taught to think rather than how to think. These are reified. These are the very structures themselves. So it's it's very hard to get a citizenry, let alone um, citizen soldiers, to be able to operate in these zones um, when you, the basis of the American economy, which is the education system, says, no, you will only operate a certain way, and it is a way that is way out of date. Um, so that's what it's mainly about. No, I mean, if we're going to talk about America's domestic sources of power, one almost can't avoid at least briefly touching on the insane presidential elections that we're going <laughs> through right now. Yeah. And of the four candidates who actually had a chance of winning in the weeks leading up to this podcast, and now we're down to just two. Three of those four Fine. wanted to, to, to... Well, okay. Uh, I don't think Bernie will win, but he's definitely going to make it very difficult for Clinton uh, okay. up to this, uh, until the very end. All right, let, let's, run, let's run with three. Of the three <laughs> candidates still in the race, two of them radically want to remake the American social contract. Yeah. And... and well, Bernie doesn't really talk that much about foreign policy, but but really fundamentally transform foreign policy. Only Hillary Clinton uh, wants to keep things more or less the way they are, as far as yes. as the establishment worldview of how the for, how foreign policy should function. Mm-hmm. Do- Donald Trump basically wants to uh, wants to to cut better deals with with. <laughs> Our NATO allies, our, our allies, whatever purpose. I mean, yeah. well, 
you know, he, he does want to be spontaneous and not have anyone know what he's thinking or what he's doing. Um, so it's very hard to actually judge what the hell he really wants. Um, Fair, but, but I've, I mean, a lot of people are supporting this and I don't think that yes. they're, I don't think that they're supporting him specifically. I mean, I don't, I haven't read the latest polling on what Americans think about NATO. I'm going to go on a limb and say that most Americans still support NATO, although they probably, if asked, think the Europeans should pay more. And that, that's yes. pretty, but, um, uh, but this, the general sense that America in its international engagements is getting a raw deal, whether it's on trade or, or the, the extent to which we're propping up the international security architecture uh, seems to be pervasive. I mean, yeah. uh, where, do you, where do you think that's coming from? Is that internal? Is that external? Is it, is it a result of the, the conflicts that we've been engaging on? And how much of that is, is affecting our ability to actually do things in the world? Well, th this is lesson seven at the end of the day, and most of it focuses on the fact that Americans, whether it's elite or um, uh, or the rest of the citizenry who don't, don't even really care about this stuff, don't actually quite understand that it is a system, that it is a dynamic system of give and take. Um, Dan Dresner, who wrote a really funny article, by the way, in the Washington Post today about uh, doctrines and how you just basically have to pick a noun and a verb and uh, you've got yourself a doctrine. Um, so good. <laughs> it really is. Uh, he he made this uh, this wonderful article about how um, the way that a lot of allies actually pay their part for the alliance, or whether or not it's a partnership or whatever, um, they may not. And Japan is a really good example of this. Um, they may not either through strategic desire, both of the U.S. and Japan itself want to increase their, um, uh, their military spending. This can be domestic, it can also be international or just regional, not wanting to aggravate China or fear, you know, scare, scare the crap out of someone in Southeast Asia. They don't want to increase their, um, their defense spending, so they ask the U.S. for more, for more help. But the way uh, Japan pays for this is by buying the bonds when the U.S. goes into debt. This is how, so the U.S. can fund itself, you know, both Japan and the U.S. know those bonds are basically inviolable, um, that they will be paid off where, whenever, when, um, and that it is a, a good source of cash for the U.S. and a good uh, long-term savings for Japan as well. But that's also how they pay off their alliance. So it's not just about, oh, they must pay more, they must have more troops, more everything. They actually do give back. They just do it in a very... Uh, maybe not subtle, but it's just sort of a way the general American electorate does not understand or cannot see or just just doesn't get because they, they just don't have the um, the expertise to be able to see things like this. Um, so it's not that they're they're free riding wholly, even though there are cases of it, and they're, they're, they can't even do it a little bit extra. Um, it's the fact that they just sort of pay their dues in certain ways. Uh, and, and people just don't see that because they understand, and this gets to, you know, lesson two again, um, U.S. military is built in a certain way for a certain thing, and the other half of it is both Congress and the people like that because it's something tangible. Um, I, I personally would love to take away about a third of the U.S. Army's um, armored combat power and turn them into what they call uh, village stability operations. Um, that would save an incredible amount of money and a lot of um, troops and everything else like that would be far more effective in entire sections of the uh, the spectrum of conflict. 
but it's not tangible. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily help the American economy because you're not building big tanks or anything else like that, which have a definitive impact, usually positive. And, and of course, of course, if if you if you knocked off, say you know fifteen twenty percent of of the total U.S. spent, you know however much of the the yeah. U, the, the U.S. military budget mm. was spent on that, you would immediately get large swaths of the American political establishment, especially people who uh, have some of these things manufactured in their home districts, which is most of them, yep. howling in outrage that America mm-hmm. was being made to look weak internationally. So, so this, this, this raises questions. So like, if we do something that's tactically smart, if we strategically downsize our military and mm. people, you know, the, the neoconservatives of the world are like, this makes America look weak. Is it is this kind of self-fulfilling? Do other people start to think that we're weak and 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 are therefore and are not willing to carry out our commitments because we're 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 smartly cutting our military even if we are fully capable and and intent, I mean, do optics matter when it comes to military budgets? Not so much simply because the US is so freaking large. I mean, um I, I can't remember there's a place out of Oslo who talks about, you know, uh, uh, both average and uh, real um, military budgets across the globe, and the U.S. is, you know, just by itself is bigger than, you know, what is it, the top thirteen, the top twenty, something like that, and ninety percent of those budgets are on allies as well. That's um, the part that I mean. It's like not only are we ahead of the next, you know, it, it, yeah. used, it used to be like twenty-five countries combined, yeah. and, and the other one hundred and sixty don't matter because it's like yeah. who cares about Nauru's military budget? Um, <laughs> but 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 most of those twenty-five, I mean, it's like most of those twenty-five are either our allies or countries that are buying their military their military hardware from us, from, uh, like the yeah. Saudis, who are in the top ten now. Be, who, who but are at getting, the same time, like there's a really good point about the Saudis is that they have. No idea, no idea or ability to use that equipment. Well, we're like about to find out. The number of <laughs> pilots they have is tiny. And the number of pilots who are willing to go up against, say, some Iranians is tiny. Um, so, it, it, yeah, like the, the amount of money either sort of saved or spent or whatever on giving this stuff to allies, particularly unreliable allies like the Saudis, um, it's a lot of money for very little purpose. And this this sort of leads straight into your your final point point six. Mm. We, we already did point seven. We did them out of mm. order um, about allies, partners, and friends, and how they can be a vital source of American military might. It's it's nice yeah. that that the UK and France are really high on that list of military expenditures, mm. but they can also be constraining, as you say. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that means we can't, we you know we have to come up with a coalition of the willing for iraq although mm-hmm. th- those countries who were against iraq were were uh kind of th- th- they were kind of right was the was the problem yeah. but um but uh but you know so- sometimes it means that that countries are not willing to go along with us but mm-hmm. in some ways the, the united states seems to have two i mean we're carrying more of the burden than we want for something like mm-hmm. nato the, the european countries have pledged to spend two percent of their gdp on 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 Mm -hmm. military almost none of them actually do that Um, we we're carrying a lot of the burden and part of that is that we're just spending too much money but part of that means when it comes time to do an operation like the libyan intervention for example Mm -hmm. we try to lead from behind we try and let europe take care of its own backyard 
and we find mm. that there's power projection problems where mm -hmm. where the French and British, who are two of the only countries in the world that really have actual power projection capability outside of their immediate neighborhood, even yep. they struggle to do something like like the Libya operation alone mm -hmm. without us. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that the French were, ran out of bombs in five days. Um, you know, it's an entire country of 70 million people with, uh, you know, <laughs> not a tiny uh, GDP. And they ran out of bombs in five days. You just got to wonder what exactly, like, where is their infrastructure, even just for anything. But, um, yeah, it, and this is actually a dynamic relationship thing as well. Um, one reason why so many people were against Iraq was just the terribleness of the end state. Um, that was offered up, and they, they just believe it, didn't see it was possible. Um, but even going into things like uh, Afghanistan, where um, they didn't, they they might have believed in the spirit of what was happening there, but they they didn't. Again, they didn't have the the technical or functional capacity to do it. Um, a lot or, of these or guys, the, or the political capacity. Yeah. A lot of times, the, you the citizenry have... were against it as well. Like uh, they, they did not want to yeah. be there. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to name names of countries, but there are certain. There are definitely countries where it's like, oh, we'll, we'll send in these soldiers, but they they can't actually fight, or, or they yeah. can only fight in this province. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like the caveats thing. I mean, the, the, again, that goes directly to your end states. I mean, if your end state isn't believed in, should a your end state be forced to be changed? Which in most cases it's yes. Or uh, b should the ally even be there? Which in a lot of cases should be no. Um, you should just say thank you very much. You can just like send us money. Don't worry about it. Um, if you if you really want to help, just like send us money. We'll take care of this. Um, yeah, we should be like but, the Hessians, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> just pay us for our services. Yeah. We'll keep the peace. Just pay yeah. us. <laughs> just just take up the money. Uh, and like uh, one thing that I get uh, I like talking about as well when discussing the very idea of victory. I don't really consider like the first Gulf War that much of a victory. In that um, it wasn't really an, a sustainable, it wasn't a self-sustainable new order that was created. I mean, the, the simple fact that 2003 Iraq War happened just proves just how unsustainable the um, the, the contract that was basically signed at, at the end of uh, sorry the early 91 uh, wasn't. But um, what was the real victory of the Gulf War was the fact that Saudi Arabia and Japan paid for it. That was the real victory at the end of the day from the Gulf War. Not It was a great battlefield victory, uh, even though it was against a really terrible power. But the strategic victory was that um, Kuwait, at the end of the day, well, in a lot of ways, but uh, Saudi Arabia and particularly Japan paid for it. But, but uh, I, also th I, mean, I also think that the fact that Kuwait continues to exist as a state set a great precedent for what the post-Cold War order was going to look like. Like, a lot of these states are kind of arbitrarily created. Yeah. They were kind of vestiges of colonialism. Iraq and, and Syria. <laughs> definitely. Um, you know, and, and a state like Kuwait might very well have been swallowed up if, if the international sovereign order didn't protect the rights of small states, of all states, mm -hmm. to, uh, to well, be sovereign. Three years beforehand during, you know, the Cold War period, it, it wouldn't have happened, just plainly would not have happened. Yeah, and I do think that the fact that, it, that that sort of thing doesn't happen very often. I mean, Russia annexing Ukraine was a shocking development because countries yeah. don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they turned around like their entire narrative against the US was like what you, you've been doing it for 15 years well, why are you complaining uh, what's going on here 
Um, and even same with Putin's, uh, I don't know what you call it, adventure in Syria, which was him just sort of going, what, like, you, you guys have been doing this all over the place in different ways, now we're just doing it on our terms. Um, yeah, so... Well, and that's, I mean, the, Sir- the Syrian example is, I mean, the end states, this is the the one that really, is, especially in my worldview of thinking and, and the, the, the conflict management stuff that I've studied, because I haven't studied the, the sort of inner workings of the military like you have, the, the conflict management side of this, having a clear plan of, of what you're going to do and, and how it ends and a clear ally to support and a viable yeah. outcome and, and, and a vision like that really matters. Like the reason yeah. that, that the Russians looked so good in Syria as opposed to what we're doing in Syria yeah. is not that the Russians have a better military and mm-hmm. it's not that they're that they're they have better leadership. Yeah. It's that they have an they have a dog in the fight. They have someone yep. to support. They have a government to support yep. that's ruled the country for, for 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. And we don't. We don't have anyone to support in, in Syria. And yep. that's one of the reasons why we've looked so feckless in Syria is that we just – there is no end state that the United States can accept that's viable. Yeah. And just the fact that Sadr and his boys ran into the parliament over the weekend, the Iraqi parliament, basically said, hey, we can take over this whenever we want is just proof of that. Um uh, you know, I, I've been saying, you know, we had this conversation offline uh, a few months ago that you really want to deal with Iraq and Syria. You basically have to sit there and say, what is the new um, political social contract, political order, whatever you want to call it, for Iraq and Syria moving forward? Do you want to split them up? Do you not? Do you want to keep them together? Is that possible? Again, I get back to self-sufficiency um, and whether or not it's even possible. Do people agree to it? Like, that's the very first question you should be talking about, not just, oh, yes, yeah, so if we bomb them, this will be fine. Clearly, it doesn't work. And, and over all strategic history, it never has. Strategic bombing has never worked once, yet it's, it's the entire purpose of the U.S. Air Force. Um, that, and that gets back to lesson two, but that's also a massive rant from me for another time. Uh, <laughs> and also going back to sort of uh, like uh, lesson four as well, you know, Chicken Hawk Nation, you know, just a reminder, the F-35 is being built in 48 states. It can't, it almost can't be killed. Um, and, and if it does, something has to be, something else has to be built immediately just to make up for all the jobs that will be lost. Um, it, it's brilliant so, how they do that. Oh, it, it really is. You've got to give them credit just for the, the sheer brilliance. And, it does uh, unify the nation. How to maintain it. But you've got to hate them at the same time. It really is. It's just it, the F-35, a lot of us call it, you know, a threat to national security. And it really is. It's just such a terrible plane doing terrible things and has so little relationship to the future battlefields, particularly at the numbers that it would be uh, intended to be built at. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. It, it, but that, right. we, we, we can go, we could do the F-35 another, but it does, <laughs> it does kind of remind me. So like, I'll, I'll make one analogy with the F-35, um, yeah. to something I actually understand, which mm-hmm. is guitar pedals. So I play guitar badly. <laughs> um, and, and what you do when you can't play guitar very well is you become a master of effects pedals because effects yep. pedals make you sound like you can play guitar. So if you put enough delay on it, it's like the edge mm-hmm. from, from U2. He, he okay. could play the guitar, but he, you know, I could play those solos because most of them are just a few notes with a ton of effects. Like he really <laughs> creates this this wall of sound out of just yeah. a few notes. So okay. effects That's can take you a long way. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there are there are effects pedals where you can buy a multi box where it's a bunch of digital effects <laughs> in one stop box and you can yep. turn it on and you can activate all of the effects and it's one mm-hmm. cool thing that does everything but it yep. doesn't do any of the things as well as as any dedicated pedal would so if i have a distortion pedal that's a dedicated analog distortion mm-hmm. pedal made by some boutique whatever uh it's gonna do better distortion than my multi-effects pedal is even though my multi-effects that's the f35 <laughs> it does everything not as well that's really good. That's whatever it's replacing. I like that. I, I really like that. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> but yes, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll get into we'll we'll, we'll have that to do that time. on another yeah. podcast. Uh, Michael, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Uh, where can no. they find? Um, where where can our listeners find your research on the internet? Oh God, all over the place. Um, you'll find a couple of things via Amazon. Uh, you'll find a few other things via um, the NDU website, particularly the NDU Press website. I should uh, be exact there. Uh, you'll find a few things on there. Uh, in particular, academia.edu, you'll find a lot of it in there. Um, most things online, um, which I have to admit, uh, you know, multiple friends in uh, civilian academia. It is kind of nice knowing that everything you've done, barring a few things, uh, are, are online, free for everyone. Um, so the, 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 that's always a, a benefit. It's, it's never really hidden behind a uh, paywall or a firewall or anything. It's, it's just right there for everyone to enjoy and to read through. So, But uh, what we've been discussing today, uh, I, I shouldn't announce, that uh, is actually being turned into – that was the 750-word version. So I'm actually uh, in the process of trying to finish up the full – um, monograph version of all of it so everyone gets to see everything and uh, instead of hyperlinks which I have a, a bit of an angst against you'll see the, the footnotes and everything where they come from um, so yeah and this sh- should be online free of charge in some time uh, actually I have no idea when <laughs> just even the ability to get this through uh, security clearance uh, can be um, a giant pain in the butt so we'll see what happens but uh, this should be out for everyone uh, in full form sometime but it's coming. Well, we will link to as many of these things as we possibly can on the website, which uh, reminds me, you can find the podcast on my website. It's joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. And you can also subscribe for free in the iTunes store uh, by searching for Ambassadors at Large. And I highly recommend a, that you do that because then you get all the episodes for free uh, automatically. And, and B, uh, once you do it, you should leave a five-star review or even like a four-star <laughs> review because that really helps spread the word about the podcast. Michael, thanks one more time for coming on the podcast for this two-parter. Uh, this no took problem. a lot of time and we've got so much more to talk about. So hopefully you will come on the podcast again. Love to. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, and thank you, uh, lovely listener, so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time with a, a new episode real soon. Till then, so long. <laughs>